Well, good morning, family. I didn't say church family. <laughs> You've become to my wife and I as family, and we are grateful. And I'm glad you're here. I have great gratitude towards Pastor Zach and our worship team. Yes, as they lead us in worship in song, and now let's worship in the Word, shall we? Before we do so, I want to remind you there was an email sent out this week in our social media accounts as well about options to participate in relief for Turkey and Syria. We mentioned two organizations, both of them after prayer and discussion with your elders, we felt that these organizations would not only provide immediate relief, but also be there long after this disaster has lost its luster in terms of a news item. So we encourage you, and I know this is a giving church, to participate. You can participate directly with both Samaritan's Purse and ICR, ICR and towards that relief. So today, our, as we continue this series in Daniel, we're looking at Daniel chapter 7, and there's a shift here. The first six chapters were individual stories, some of them concerning Daniel, Hananiah, and Mishael, and Azariah, stories of men who would not budge, who stood firm in the midst of great trial and God's deliverance and His provision for them. We also saw a story of the most powerful man, most likely in the world, Nebuchadnezzar, whose pride brought him low. And God dealt with him. Because after all, doesn't God deal with our pride? That should get an amen. amen. I'm not looking. <laughs> Rob thinks I'm looking at him. <laughs> I promise you, brother, I'm not. <laughs> but God restored him. Because his look went from being one that looked down from his palace and all the things that he created for his majesty and his glory, his look went from looking down to where we see he began to look up. And when he began to look up, God restored him. But this is a shift. Those first six chapters are stories of those men. Now, we see in these last six chapters a series of visions they're symbolic language. And what's given in these visions is literally the history of mankind. How it's going to unfold. What the end will look like. The historical record of mankind. I, I was teasing with a pastor friend of mine on my way home yesterday, and I said, hey, listen to my message tomorrow because I'm going to give you a chart and I'm going to tell you how it's all going to end. That should get a laugh. That's my laugh. <laughs> Unfortunately, today I won't be able to tell you that because Scripture doesn't say. But I will tell you some things that are true no matter what happens. So we're looking at a troubling dream that Daniel has in this chapter. And so I want to ask you this morning, have you ever had a dream that when you woke up or maybe it woke you up that you were left in a cold sweat and it just was terrifying or troubling in his nature. Can I see your hands? Am I the only guy? Yeah. Not, not so. I had a dream like that in my 20s and 30s. It was reoccurring. It was, it was this. In my dream, I needed one class to graduate, and I had failed from college. 
And and I would I would think I I know that I know that I've taken that class, but I I can't pass it, and I need to pass it because I'm already practicing and I'm lying on my <laughs> resume and that I haven't passed college. I I haven't passed this class, and literally I would wake up in a, in a cold sweat, troubled by this dream. It was so real, and I mentioned it to Becky one time, and she said, "Well, Mike, that happened to you." There's a laugh there, Lionheart. She said, "That really happened to you." I said, "Okay," and she's right. It was the last semester of my senior year in college. It was during an athletic season. I was gone a lot. That was my excuse. (laughs) And I had to take this class called Comparative Civ. I went to a liberal arts school, and I had to have this class to pass. And I felt like the class was worthless. Still kind of do, truthfully. (laughs) And I had a professor. He was of Palestinian background extraction. When he talked, he talked with a cough. And he called me in one day. Uh, I actually wasn't a class. He, he sent me a message and he, he said, uh, uh, Mike, my call, uh, you've only been here three times this semester and I'm going to flunk you. And I remember <laughs> begging him, like, I'll do anything. I need to pass this class. And he was very gracious to me and let me make up some work. But that dream pales in comparison to Daniel's dream. This dream, this vision, like I said, was terrifying to him. It was nightmarish in its effect. And I want to remind us this morning that Daniel was not one given to fear. Remember, he'd been thrown into the lion's den. He showed no fear in that circumstance. He knew one way or the other, whatever the outcome would be, he didn't regret that he stood firm, that he would not bow his knee, that he continued to pray. So he was not a man given to terror, but this dream terrifies him. The first eight verses of this chapter talks about that. And the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, Daniel says, and there were four beasts that came out of this sea. And each of them were different. Each of them were progressively more frightening. And I imagine a 6th century B.C. man trying to describe this. The first beast was like a lion that had wings of eagle, but the wings were stripped, and this lion stood on two feet and, and became a man. The second one was a bear, and this bear was raised up on two feet on the side. It was poised and ready to attack. It was already devouring flesh in this vision. The third beast was like a leopard. It was a leopard who could fly. It had four heads. It was swift. It moved in every direction. You couldn't hide or run from this beast. But the last one, there was no animal that Daniel could use to describe it was different. It had iron teeth. It crushed everything in its path. It trampled what it didn't consume. And in this beast had ten horns. And one of those horns grew out of those other ten and became powerful. This text, I will say to you, beloved church, is one of the most important texts in the Old Testament for these reasons. 
First of all, it's the background for Jesus' teaching about the end of days. If you recall from Matthew 24, his disciples asked him when he told them that the temple would be destroyed, they had this little holy huddle. You could tell they were concerned, and they said, well, when's that going to be? What's, what's the sign of that and the end of, your, of the age? And he gives them the answers, and he refers to Daniel. It's also the background, this chapter is the background of much of the book of Revelation. You'll see that imagery used in the accounts that Daniel sees. Because after all, this vision that Daniel has with these four beasts, and the other things that we'll talk about in a minute, is this panoramic view of the history of mankind. There's a third reason why this text is so important for us as Christ followers this morning, for us as a church, is it uses the term, the term is introduced, it's, it's in the Old Testament and other places, but it uses a term that Jesus uses to describe himself. It was a night of first for Daniel. Because first, the first thing is that He's the one doing the dreaming. (laughs) It's not someone else. So that's a shift. And in this dream, he doesn't have the interpretation. (laughs) He doesn't know what it means. So he he has to ask an angel. And the angel tells him in verses 17 through 27 what this vision means. He says, these four great beasts that you saw, There are kingdoms that will rise out of the earth, and there are the kingdoms from now until the end of time, as we know it. There's an image I want you to see that Pastor Bobby talked about. This is from Nebuchadnezzar's vision in chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar saw an image, and I want to lay that image side by side with these four beasts, because I think it's a fair representation of the passage, and talk about that. You see the golden head? That golden head represents the kingdom of Babylon and its leaders, Nebuchadnezzar. The chest of arms and silvers is Persia. And Persia is the current country that's in power when Daniel has this vision. The third beast corresponds with the belly and the thighs of bronze, and that's Greece. That leopard was Greece. And then the fourth kingdom, the one that a beast can't describe, excuse me, an animal can't describe, that fourth beast is the legs of iron and the feet of iron and clay, and that's Rome. What you see here is you see some kingdoms from Daniel's past, Babylon, the head of gold, His present, which was Persia, and then his future, which would be Greece and Rome. And the little horn that was talked about in this chapter comes from these ten toes, if you will, these ten horns, this descendant of Rome. And after all, isn't Rome still, the remnants of Rome still in power today? I had some examples there, but in the interest of time, I won't, but that we live in Rome. We're like Romans. We worship the Super Bowl, right? I mean, we're going to do anything we can to see our gladiators. Do we not? I mean, am I off here, right? We're the remnants of Rome. And what we see, and the Apostle Paul talks about that little horn 
that would grow large and emerge from those ten, the Apostle Paul calls him the son of perdition. Folks, there's one coming. I'm debating whether I want to use it. I have my theories about the Antichrist. I think it's Jerry Jones, but I'll, that's, that's my joke for the day. Is this the one that's going to be recorded? I'm going to be in trouble, I think. <laughs> I don't know who it is, but there's, there's, good, there's a guy coming, and look, it's not a laughing matter. Paul calls him the son of perdition. This Antichrist will come from the remnants of Rome. Jesus refers to him in that chapter I spoke to you about, Matthew 24. Jesus calls him the abomination of desolation. This guy, it's going to be bad news. Terrible news. In fact, Jesus said that if God delayed his coming, and by the way, I should say that today and let's end and go grab lunch and beat the Baptist and all that, all right? <laughs> Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. But, but he says, if God delayed his coming, all flesh would be destroyed. That's how bad it's going to be. But then in the midst of this horrific, terrifying dream that terrifies no less a man than Daniel, there's this reoccurring theme that you begin to see that occurs from this point on in the chapter through the end of the chapter. And you'll see it in these verses. Look at them with me in verse 17 and 18. This angel tells Daniel, these four great beasts are the four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints... <laughs> I wish I could preach like T.D. Jakes. <laughs> Because I would pause right here and preach the rest of the day. But the saints, look, the saints of the Most High, the one who is sovereign over all, that before the foundations of the world were laid, knew the history of mankind, knew the outcomes. By the way, there's not a cosmic battle going on, and sometimes God wins, and sometimes the enemy wins. No, the battle is over. The saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom. How long? <laughs> and forever. And forever. Here's the message, beloved. The beast should not be our focus this morning. Don't be discouraged or distracted by the beast. They're real. Why? Why should we not be discouraged today? Because above the chaos, above the impending doom, our Lord reigns. And we will reign with Him forever. Do you see that? Verse 18, but the Lord, but the saints, excuse me, it has a New Testament connotation. The, the saints will receive that kingdom. And the reason that the angel could say this with confidence to Daniel is found in two passages in this same chapter. And I, if it's true that the book of Daniel, in the book of Daniel, chapter 7 is one of the most important chapters, then some of the most, the most important verses in this chapter I'm going to read in a couple of minutes. And I believe that these verses are some of the most important ones in the entire Bible. They're important theologically. 
They're important eschatologically. I'll tell you my weak joke. I used to think if I could spell that, I could pass that class in seminary. But here, all eschatology means is the study of end times. They're important that way. But most importantly, they're important about the revelation of Jesus Christ and who He is. So look with me. And here's the first reason. Here's the first character that shows up in these verses. It's verse 9. Daniel says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. (laughs) I want to pause right there. I'm reminded of when Isaiah had that vision of God himself seated high on the throne and lifted up. That's what we see here. The Ancient of Days is on His throne. He took His seat. His clothing was white as snow. The hair of His head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before Him. A thousand thousands served Him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before Him. The court sat in judgment, and O church, the books were opened. So who is this Ancient of Days? It's the Lord God Himself. Daniel's in the midst of this dream, but his dream shifts. It's no longer about those four great beasts and powers and kingdoms that will be. They are insignificant to what he sees. There are two characters that are revealed in his dream, and the first one is the Ancient of Days. And as terrifying as those kingdoms represented by those beasts were, they pale in comparison to this Ancient of Days. He's taken his seat, his rightful place, as the judge and ruler over all, as the all-knowing, all-encompassing, powerful one. Look closely with me at this particular text. The text says, His clothing was as white as snow. That speaks of His holiness, of His purity and righteousness. Who is this? It's none other than the Ancient of Days, and there is none like him. The text says his hair was like pure or the whitest wool. That speaks of his eternal nature, of again, of his purity, of his wisdom. He has always existed, and he is wise beyond all comparison. Who is this? It's none other than the Ancient of Days. In church, there's none like him. The text goes on to say his throne was flaming fire. It speaks of a judgment that's coming. It's going to purify us. It's righteous in its nature. Who is this? It's none other. It is God. It's none other than the Ancient of Days, and there's none like him. And his throne has wheels of burning fire, the text says. It tells us that he's not subject to space and time as we are. He sees everything. He is present always. Who is this church? It's none other than the Ancient of Days. In church, there is none like Him. 
Thousands upon thousands of angelic beings serve Him. Millions stand before Him, even now, praising Him, singing holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then it says, the last part of verse 10, the books were opened. I want to stop right there and talk about these books. There's two that I can faithfully submit to you from the text that exist. There may be more. The first of these books is a record of every single deed of every human being that's ever lived. Does that give you any pause for concern or am I the only one? The second book is the Lamb's Book of Life. And the glorious nature of that book is this. That if your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, when that judgment day comes, when all of us stand before the throne, and do you know that we will all do that? And a given account of our life and the deeds which we've done. If your name is in the Lamb's Book of Life, Christ will be your advocate. I believe He'll be standing or sitting there on His throne at the right hand of the Father, and He will say, by God's grace, He will say about me, and for those of you that follow Christ, He will say, pass. <laughs> All those deeds that are recorded that I'll give an account for. Does that thought bother any of you at all? It bothers me. But when that account is given, if my name or your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, Christ Himself will say, my blood has covered this. It's paid in full. You've been judged righteous because of the righteousness of Christ. There's another character in this vision. Like a son of man, it's Jesus. Jesus preferred this title when referring to himself. He was called the Christ. He was called the Messiah. He was called other things. Maybe you recall when, when he asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter makes that glorious declaration, you're the Christ the Son of the living God. All those are true, but Christ Himself used the Son of Man 81 times in the Gospels to refer to Himself. He knew Daniel. <laughs> he was the Word. I can't, I'm above my pay grade right now, right? He was the Word of God. He's referring to Himself. The Jews knew it too, particularly the religious leaders. And they were offended every time he said the Son of Man. Offended every time because what he's saying is, I'm the one. Perhaps the most compelling example of those multiple occasions that he used this term, we find in the book of Matthew, 
26 when he's on trial. Here's the setting. Maybe you remember this. It's the night before he's crucified and he's, he's on trial for his life. And they take him to the home of Caiaphas, the high priest. And they're making all kinds of accusations and he's already been beaten and marred. And he's standing before the high priest and all of that council in that courtyard, or in that house. And the high priest is ever growing in his frustration and indignation because all these accusations are being levied against the Son of Man, against Christ, and he does not say a word. Church, <laughs> that's a sermon in itself. Have you ever had accusations levied at you against, which are false? Sometimes it's a good thing to not say anything, right? He won't say a word. Christ does not answer any of those accusations, which were all false. And then the high priest, in his indignation, says this, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And here's how Jesus answered him. Look at it with me. <laughs> he said, you have said so. You've said it. But then look at this, church. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. <laughs> exactly what Daniel said and what he saw 600 years before. Do you see that in verse 13 of, of Daniel 7? Here it is. Daniel sees in the night visions, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to that ancient of days and was presented before him. Was presented before him. I'm reminded of the words of the Apostle Paul when he's writing to the church at Philippi. And he gives us the reason that this man, this son of man, could be presented to the Ancient of Days in this way. Paul tells us that Christ, that Jesus, was in the form of God, which means that he was exactly like God in his form, in every way. He was equal to him in every way. But Paul tells us he didn't use that equality with God to his advantage. Why? Because he had a mission. He had a job. Instead, Paul says, he empties himself. Jesus, the Son of Man, the one who's truly God and truly human, he empties himself and becomes a servant, which literally means the lowest of the low. Born in human form, in the likeness of man. And then his mission was that he would become obedient to the point of death, even death as a criminal. And Paul tells us at the conclusion, because of that finished work of the Son of Man, God bestowed on him a name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. 
every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So in the midst of Daniel's terrifying dream, this panoramic, symbolic view of the entire history of mankind and its destruction, how history will unfold, all the horrors and death and tribulation associated with that event. Here's the truth, folks. The Lamb wins. <laughs> Did everybody say amen in here that follows Jesus? Amen. That's the truth. The Lamb wins. He was presented to the Holy of Holy, to the, to the Ancient of Days on the throne. Look, I, I want to remind us this morning, end times is such a fascinating conversation topic. Uh, millions of pages have been written about it. People are very curious. I understand that. But I want to remind us that this book, it was not written to comfortable Christians who are curious about how the end is going to come take place. No, it was written to a man who had been living in exile by this time 50 years. 50 years he'd been living in exile with no hope of ever going back to his home country. No hope. Unspeakable things had been done to him. No hope of having a family, having a wife. No hope of ever going back to worship at the temple, his home. That's who God sent this vision to. And the story is not about what's going to happen. It's true. What, it, what he sees is going to happen. The story is the lamb wins. Man, I'm not preaching this good enough because there should just be this resounding amen. amen. Come on, guys. I want to ask you a question. Have you ever felt like Daniel and the exiles must have felt? 50 years of living away from his home. Disappointed. Upset. Distraught. Maybe there's some situations that you're facing or have faced that there seem to be no answer, no deliverance, no way out. Maybe you've come in here today and you're troubled by the future. I certainly am. I love our country. I believe our country is the greatest of experiments that was founded that there would be a nation under God. I'm troubled. Maybe you feel powerless by circumstances in your life. Maybe you feel defeated. Maybe you just don't fit and you feel like a foreigner and an exile like Daniel. Our pastor taught us last week that he encourages us to not live as a comfortable tourist. This is not some great vacation we're on. And I know that's the Captain Obvious statement, is it not? <laughs> we're on a journey, but we shouldn't live as tourists observing and trying to live our best life now, right? No, we're to live as exiles, as foreigners in a foreign land. That's not comfortable. It's difficult. It's challenging. 
But I want to share with you this morning, beloved, that I have really good news for you today. The powers in this world can be, will be terrible. Those that are now exist and those that are to come. And I will share with you that I believe they're going to get worse. And I can't promise you that the church will escape the destruction and death that's coming. But folks, here's how we can make it through. No matter what may come, above all the chaos and impending doom and destruction and death, that Ancient of Days, the one we talked about, that's seated on His throne, He's in charge. Christ Jesus reigns, the one, the Son of Man that was presented to Him, and we will reign with Him forever. Maybe today you are not sure about following Christ and, and, and what that looks like. Maybe you're not sure about the things you've heard today. And maybe when you listened or heard about the book that contains all the entries of the events of your life, maybe you've been troubled by that. I am a follower of Christ and I will confess to you, I am very troubled by that, by that book. I want you to know that those deeds, the things that have separated you from that ancient of days, those things can be taken care of today. You can call upon the one, the Son of Man, who finished that work and paid your debt. And your name will be revealed in the Lamb's Book of Life. And after all, is that not the book that we want to be in? But maybe you are a follower of Christ today. And, you, and you're like me. You wonder, like, can I survive this? And by the way, I'm an old man now, so I, I don't know. You know, I mean, how much, I'm not being fatalistic here, but I, I, don't, I just don't know. And I wonder, I, I came to faith in the Jesus movement back in the 70s, and really one of the, the key linchpins of that movement was this idea of a rapture, that the church would be snatched away, that we wouldn't have to go through the destruction that's coming. I wish I could preach to you and teach to you, beloved church, that that's what's going to happen. I just don't know. I tend to think that we're not going to escape it. I tend to think that we may have to go through those very difficult times. But the theme of this book is what will see us through. Do you remember the theme? Here it is. God stands firm with those who stand firm with Him. Has there ever been a better example of someone standing firm than Daniel? In the midst of terrible things? My wife's dad, Becky, my wife Becky, her father died a couple of weeks ago and was gathered to his people. He was 101 years old. He was a man of steadfast faith. His life could be really divided into three sections. The first 45 years of his life were wondrous sweet times. He had four children. 
He had a good time. It was good. His wife died, which was Becky's mama. And the next 45 years of his life were a living hell. I said this in the first service, and I, I forgot to add this, and, and I think it's true of all of us. I think there's two tracks that are going on simultaneously in our lives. Maybe you're in a track, maybe your track right now is one of great trial and difficulty. You're facing some things that only God has the answer to. But I want to share with you that if you're a follower of Jesus, there's another track that's going on. And that's the track of standing firm and the glorious blessing that comes when we stand firm with him. It doesn't mean that we may necessarily get delivery. It just means that we're going to be more than a conqueror through Christ. So he had 45 years of hell. He outlived two wives, and when he was 91, he married his third wife. She was the best friend of my mom. <laughs> and God gave them 10 years of peace. His nickname was Budgie. And where that came from was Budge. And it was this. He was so principled. I mean, well-meaning folks, candidly, I, I did not do that, but his immediate family encouraged him to divorce his second wife. He would not do so. Why? Because the scripture told him he had no basis. He did not budge. And I share this and he would not be happy with me, but I have to share it. I was going through his records. The last check he wrote by hand on this earth was to his church. He stood firm. This is not a tithe sermon. <laughs> it's a stand firm sermon. Look, we're not promised deliverance church. But we are promised that we will rule and reign with Christ. Don't budge. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your timeless word. Your word that's true. The only truth. Father, I pray that today, I, I believe there are folks here, they're wavering, and, that, and that's okay. They're, they're struggling with things in life, and how do I deal with this fact or circumstance or situation or relationship, and what does that look like for me as a, as a follower of Christ? And Lord, I pray that the grace that you extend to us, the grace that was extended at the cross, Lord, may we continually preach and teach that, that no matter where you are or how you think you failed, Christ can rescue you. He can walk with you through that circumstance. He'll see you through. Lord, we thank you that you were presented to your Father and that the work was finished. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.